What's going on, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Total Sports Talk Beyond the Lights. And, you know, we really hope that you guys were able to enjoy that bonus coverage we gave yesterday. It's one of those times where we really want to give you guys the most up-to-date news as possible. And when you have a semifinal matchup like that, it, it we have to do a special bonus coverage show. And so that's why we had a show uh, yesterday, and we hope you guys uh, really enjoyed it. We enjoyed filming it. And uh, with that also being said, we will be doing another one next week because as we all know, national championship game is next Monday. So we have to cover that. And so that's exactly what we're going to do next week as well. So pay attention for that. But for the most part, the rest of the schedule will continue to be the same. So look out for these videos, check out those notifications and sign up for them if you haven't. But I am your host, Matthew Raritan, and beside me are my co-hosts here. And first, we've got David Street. What's up, everybody? And we've got Ed Smith. Welcome, y'all. All right, guys. Well, I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, we do actually have a lot to talk about. Uh, we did cover this last episode, the semifinal matchups, but there was actually several other matchups this that happened this last week, and both in the NFL and college football. We are going to get uh, to the the rest of the New Year's Six Bowls, but first I want to start on the NFL. And there was actually a very exciting game and possible playoff preview that happened leading up to this weekend, and that was the Detroit Lions playing the Dallas Cowboys. And as we know, Cowboys do have a winning record, and they are now at the top of their division, the NFC East, but they struggle against other teams that are 500 or better. The only win they have this year of a team 500 or better was against the Eagles, and, well, they struggle on the road, but this was a home game. This was over in Dallas, and, well, we didn't really know exactly how this was going to play out. Well, it played out actually to be an amazing game for both teams, it wasn't a high-scoring matchup, but it was efficient. In the end, Dallas did win 20-19, to but that did not come without any controversy. There was issues at the end of the game. This was a back-and-forth matchup where Dallas ended up taking the lead towards the end, but Detroit came storming back. And Detroit scored a touchdown and was down by one. For the most part, almost every coach in the league kicks that extra point. It's, it's just, it's one point right there. You kick it, you tie the game, you go into overtime. Well, not Dan Campbell. He wanted to show you how aggressive he is as a head coach. He's like the Dan Lanning of, uh, of the NFL where he's going to be aggressive and he wanted that win. So they line up to go for a two-point conversion and they get it successfully. And while they're celebrating, they end up you know being a penalty flag for an illegal touching because a lineman caught it. It was a trick play. Well, that's where the controversy began, and I'm going to get to that. But first, I want to then continue on my point here where they decided to line up again, even after this penalty. They didn't decide to do extra point. They decided, all right, let's do this again. So they went to go do it again. Interception. Oh, there's a flag on that play. All right, well, let's retry. You sure? This is third time the charm. You don't want to go for an extra point, tie the game? No, I want to win this game now. And they went for it a third time, and they failed. So, And that ended up being the ball game right there. But I want to circle back to this controversy. This is an ongoing issue. 
I say ongoing, it's continuing to be talked about, but it's not probably going to be after, you know, today or tomorrow. But there is video evidence. Uh, you have player reports. You have the ref reports indicating that the correct lineman did report as eligible, whereas the refs are sticking to their guns saying no, Taylor Decker did not report as eligible, whereas Dan Skipper did. And you're seeing all these videos, you're seeing, and, and Dan Skipper actually came out, if you didn't see this, actually just happened about an hour or two ago, talking about, I did have hand signals, but I was calling 12 personnel. And if you know what I'm talking about, that's exactly what I was doing. I was not, uh, wave, I wasn't waving my hand around my jersey number like you would normally do. Uh, I would, if you look closely, you'll see that I had uh, two fingers up. I was indicating 12 personnel. And you saw that uh, it was Taylor Decker who approached the ref. The ref is still sticking to his guns where he said, nope, number 70 is who reported. I saw him. He was doing hand signals on his chest. He was indicating that. Even though he didn't approach me, he indicated that. Even though Taylor Decker is the one who approached him. And if you've seen the video, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But in the end, the refs called what they called. There's no coming back from that. Uh, Detroit lost the game, and it's on to the next one. And this could be a bigger issue if Detroit maybe didn't clinch the playoffs, if they were this was very close. But both these teams have clinched already, and that's kind of it's kind of a non-issue, and they are now saying they're just gonna move on. But if they were on, you know, the fringe, they were they possibly weren't gonna make the playoffs, uh, or if it was gonna be close, this would become such a bigger issue. But it just shows that the refs, man. They've been very inconsistent, and I get they're human. They are, and they're seeing this during live play, which is very, very tough. I know it is. It's hard as fans just to watch, but we have replays. They don't. They're watching this live, and so I I, I do want to give them that credit, but it is just becoming an ongoing issue in the NFL, and it's something that the NFL is going to need to really talk about because they did downgrade these officials, but for what? If you're saying that what they did was correct, why are they being downgraded? Are you pretty much telling the public they did mess up, but without them? So uh, that, that's something that I'm really curious about. But that situation is done and over with. But there is something else I really want to talk about in this game, and that is C.D. Lamb. C.D. Lamb is having one heck of a year. And it may be under the radar for some people because – you know, a lot of people probably get annoyed. Dallas Cowboys are always being talked about. They're America's team. You're, you're always hearing about Dak Prescott, whether if he had a great game or a bad game. That's all they seem to really talk about. But C.D. Lamb, guys, I mean, he has to be top in the top three of wide receivers this year. He is number one in the NFL right now in receptions with 122. He's number two in receiving yards with 1,651 and number three with receiving touchdowns in with 10. So, I mean, he's one, two, and three in those categories. And I, I just really feel like he deserves to be up there in the talks of being top three this year. And his stats are proving it. And I don't want to discredit him um, when I say this comment because it's going to sound a little contradicting. But it's, it's weird not seeing some of these other top receivers up there, like the likes of Devontae Adams, Stephon Diggs, Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chase. But they all dealt with injuries, whether it was with themselves or with their quarterbacks. But CeeDee Lamb, the entire year, has just been on a tear, very similar to Tyreek Hill. 
in my opinion, they're one and two in the NFL right now, and it's very close in my opinion. So I really like to see the development that CeeDee Lamb uh, is the path that he's on because he is looking great in the NFL and in a very tough NFC East conference. I mean, uh, the Eagles usually have a very, very stout defense. So to be able to put up those numbers and on a consistent basis just shows a type of receiver you're on. But Detroit as a team, are they bad? Uh, you know, they, they, they're playing in a division right now that isn't at the top of their game. Uh, I, I don't think so. I actually think Detroit is a legit team. Uh, they have been proven in offense and defense pretty much for the most part of the year. They are actually, in my opinion, probably the most improved team on both sides of the ball this year. And there is a reason why they won this division for the first time in 30 years. And they're headed to the playoffs because they are they are really complete from the coaching staff to offense and defense. And that offensive line, we've talked about it many times on here. That offensive line is really good. So uh, Detroit, I don't think, is a bad team, even though they aren't in one of the best of the uh, divisions with uh, the NFC North. Uh, even though the Vikings have had a bad year, the Bears, gosh, they had a good year. And then Green Bay with this transition to Jordan Love, uh, I don't want that to discredit what the Detroit Lions have done this year. Uh, would you guys uh, agree with that? I mean, you think Detroit is a pretty good team? Go ahead, Ed. Detroit is a pretty good team but pretty good. I don't think that they're at the elite level that is going to take them deep enough into the playoffs to to get over that hump of actually making it to a Super Bowl. Uh, One thing I did want to point out uh, with, uh, with the whole controversy of the officiating at the end of that game, with the fact that Dallas is now the two seed and Detroit is the three seed, that game, essentially creates a home field advantage if both of those teams get further into the playoffs. So we're going to see that same game, you know, possibly three weeks from now because of an officiating an officiating error. And that is not something that is a good look for the NFL uh, as a whole, to have the officials become part of the game that they're just supposed to be regulating, not creating a separate player within the game itself. Yeah, that is very true. I'm glad you actually brought up that point because, as I said, Dallas is not a good team on the road. They are good at home. And if that is the case where they're going to host a home game against Detroit, it's the odds are going to be better in their favor because of that. So I'm glad you brought that up, Ed. Yeah, and as far as the Lions go, um, we have to keep in mind that last year the Lions got off to a horrible start. They got off to like a two and six, three and eight. I don't remember exactly what it was, but they got off to a really bad start last year and rebounded to finish with a winning record. Um, and now they've won a division title, so they've carried the momentum from last year into this year. Are they Super Bowl contenders? Probably not. Well, let me just say that I think on offense, they absolutely are Super Bowl contenders if we're just talking about offenses because the Lions have one of the best offenses in the league, but their defense leaves a lot to be desired. I think they have some nice pieces there with, you know, uh, Anzalone and all those guys, but 
they definitely leave a lot to be uh, desired. And while we're talking about the Lions, um, when when we're talking about that uh, last play call, um, you know, I didn't hate Dan Campbell going for two the first time because, you know, I don't think you can hate that kind of aggression when you're doing it for the fir- for the first time. And, of course, you always want to go for the win, especially against a team like the Cowboys. But when, when you fail the first couple of times, well, buddy, at that point, you know, just take the point, right? Um, the problem, you know, and we've, we've kind of talked about this before is that the problem is that a lot of these coaches are just way too obsessed with looking like geniuses, but sometimes it's okay to take the, the safe route. You know, sometimes it's, it's okay to just take the path that is like right in front of you on, on a, on a, on a yellow brick road. Um, but you know, but, uh, Listen, Dan Campbell is unapologetically aggressive and he's never going to change his ways. And hey, you know what? Kudos to him because it's led the Lions to the most success that they've had in quite some time. So I I can always respect someone for uh, sticking with their guns. Now, as far as that controversial call, man, I mean, I think we I, I think I mentioned it on the I don't remember if I mentioned it during the show or if it was after the show. Um, but when Jared Goff said, Hey, I don't know if, if I'm going to get fined for this, but I do know that our guy talked to him. Like I, I felt so bad for him because imagine having the fear of being fined for speaking the literal truth. Like I, I just do not understand why refs are the least accountable. Um, like roughing is probably the, the least accountable job in, in the, the world. Like you, you criticize them even when they deserve it, like even when it's so obvious that they did something wrong and you get slapped with a fine. I mean, like how messed up is, is that, Matthew? Yeah, it, it kind of is. It's almost like a double standard because uh, anyone could talk about the players. Anyone could talk about the coaches. In all honesty, I mean, the the players are you know, so high on like a pedestal, they're supposed to be perfect. And when they aren't, they, the media attacks them, you know, fans attack them and you know, that they're making millions of dollars, this, this, and that, but refs, you can't attack them. And I, I, and I say the word attack and I don't want that to mean, uh, you know, really into them, but you know, pointing out some of the obvious just like that should not warrant a fine, but that that's just where we are now. I mean, it's like that in every sport, and uh, I know the players know that, but it's still one of those things that they should still be able to say it. I know they could afford the fine, but it just doesn't seem right that one you can't talk about one, but you could talk about the other. Yeah. Oh come on! If it wasn't for refs not being accountable for what they do, Angel Hernandez would not still have a job. <laughs> yeah, I I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. He's uh, for sure. But, yeah, I mean, you know, we saw another matchup this weekend. And, David, you you talked about, you know, sticking to your guns. And uh, this matchup was supposed to be a shootout. I, it really was. And that didn't happen. And that was between the Miami Dolphins and the Baltimore Ravens. At least it wasn't for one team. Um, but, uh, David, do you want to kind of tell us uh, this game? I mean, do you feel the same that it probably should have been a shootout between both? Yeah. I mean, based on paper, it it should have been, um, I'm not surprised obviously that the Ravens won, but I am certainly surprised by the manner, um, in in which they won. And, you know, before I talked about how 
how the Dolphins have a very underrated defense. They had a top five defense. Nobody was talking about it. And then the Ravens just uh, thrashed them. Listen, I still think the Dolphins are Super Bowl contenders or at the very least, I still think they are one of the, one of the top teams in the NFL. I, I think I think this victory says way more about the Ravens than it does about the Dolphins because, guys, I don't think people have a true grasp on just how good the Ravens have been this year because when you crunch everything down, the Ravens are not just the best team in the NFL. They're the best team in the NFL by far, Okay. And it goes beyond box score numbers. It goes beyond the the, the raw numbers, right? First of all, um, the Ravens um, so far have outscored their opponents by 210 points. They're the only team in the NFL to have a, uh, a scoring differential of, a, of at least 200 points. Now, you know, sometimes in cases like this, it, it could be a manner where a team is just scoring a bazillion points on offense and they're, they're risking defense in that case well no in this case that's that's not it for uh for the dolphins because if you look at them they're balanced on both offense and defense they're the only team in the nfl to be top five in total offense and total defense they're the only team in the nfl to be top three in scoring offense and scoring defense and guys they're not doing this against a cupcake schedule all right against teams with winning records 10 of them, by the way, the Ravens so far have faced 10 teams with winning records against such teams. The Ravens are outscoring them by an average margin of 30 to 17 against division leaders. It's even more, more dominant. The Ravens so far have faced and beaten four division winners. And you want to know the average margin of score against those particular teams, 38 to 13 guys. We are like, we're not used to seeing this kind of domination from the NFL, from the NFL. Like the NFL has become a lot more balanced over the years where, yeah, of course, every year you're going to have your best team, your, your clear cut best team, but we don't really get these truly dominant teams. Like, you know, like we have have before. And I don't know about you guys, but I actually appreciate it when it happens. I, I appreciate when we get a product on the field that we're just not accustomed to seeing. And personally, I think the way that I see it, this, this is the first time we've seen a truly dominant team in the NFL since funny enough, the Ravens in 2019, you got, you got, you guys remember that, that Ravens team, how they just flat out kicked everybody's ass on the field. Well, when I compare those two teams, it's interesting because, of course, that, that Ravens team in 2019 was in, incredible, at least in the regular season. I, I know they got, you know, destroyed in the, in the postseason, but at least in the regular season, they were in, in, incredible. But to me, that Ravens team felt like more, it felt more like the Lamar Jackson show, whereas this Ravens team see, seems a lot more balanced. Yeah, Lamar Jackson is, you know, still, still balling out. He's still the best player. Um, at least on offense he is, but this Ravens team seems a lot, you know, it, it just seems more balanced. Right. And listen, I know I ripped on Lamar before about how he doesn't deserve MVP. And then he just went on to have the best game, you know, in, in the NFL. So, Hey, you know what? You didn't like, nobody is really sticking out, um, as far as MVP goes, but Lamar Jackson has certainly, um, has certainly been, been sticking out. And, you know, that was a, a dominant showing against a really good NFL team. So sure, go ahead and give him the MVP. Guys, are the Ravens going to win the Super Bowl? 
I don't know. But what I do know is that they're balanced offensively. They're stout defensively. John Harbaugh, once, once again, has done a masterful job um, with, with this Ravens team. We've seen we've seen this before, and we're seeing it again. Ed? Well, something that you've heard me say a thousand times uh, before, it's the culture of winning that is entrenched in the Ravens organization from, from the top down. You know, from ownership to Ozzie Newsom in the GM office, all the way down to uh, John Harbaugh and the culture that he brings to the players and the players embrace that because they know that their, their teammates are going to have each other's backs 100%. Now, as far as what this Ravens team's, this Ravens team is doing from what I've seen, they've been explosive, but also it's not just on the offense. The linebacking core of this team has been just destroying people, you know, left and right. Uh, anything intermediate into the line of scrimmage, they've got that completely covered. It has been, uh, it was really fun to watch them really take all the speed out of the Miami Dolphins team and just kind of plod them along as opposed to letting them get behind them and get that speed working because that is Miami's game. Use that speed to get past you. And Baltimore, the way that they had schemed it, they just couldn't. And, you know, the one shot that they really had, uh, Tyreek Hill couldn't necessarily keep the ball in his hands in the back of the end zone. So that's that's what I'm seeing from the Ravens. The They are definitely the best team in the AFC. I, I'm still interested to see what it would look like against San Francisco. I know they played last week and it was a domination, but with Trent Williams healthy, because that is the team that I think is the closest to being the top of the top of the table uh, for power rankings in the NFL. That's fair. And Matthew, as a Steelers fan, I know it's got to hurt you deep inside to see our biggest rival just, you know, having the season that they're having. Well, it's not just them. It's the Browns, too. I mean, both the Browns and the Ravens are one and two in takeaways in the NFL this year. Normally, you see a team like the Steelers up there. So when you see the Ravens and the Browns one and two in the NFL, it's like, damn, it does suck. But, you know, this is going to catch you guys a little off guard here. But do you guys feel like in the last five years, this Roquan Smith trade might have been the best acquisition in the NFL in the last five years. Roquan Smith is just another he's a he's a beast. I mean, watching certainly him. Certainly one of them. Yeah. If it's not the best, it is it is certainly it is certainly up there. Because what I like about Roquan's game so much is that he does not like when he ha- when he has his eyes on his target, he does not miss. I don't have the, the numbers in front of me. But I'm pretty sure that he has, you know, he's among the leaders in, in fewest missed tackles. Well, yeah, he, he does not miss tackles. He's always one of the leaders in tackles. But the guy intercepts balls. He can cover downfield. I mean, he is as complete as they come as an inside linebacker. Are we forgetting about Patrick Queen? My goodness, that dude is 
just a terror. <laughs> it's contract year. I mean, he, oh, he, yeah. he, uh, yeah. he, you know, uh, opt, pretty much opt, opted out because he's going to become a free agent this next year. So yeah. this, this, you know, that's when you want to perform. He may very well come back to the Ravens and he would be very smart to, and the Ravens would be very smart to, you know, if they can't afford to give him money because him and Roquan Smith, two in, of those, those two linebackers on the inside, yeah let me just yeah let me say something real quick that might be a bit of a hot take gentlemen but i firmly believe that if the ravens win the the super bowl and their defense you know is a big contributor to it i think you have to put this ravens defense up there with the all-time greats with the 13 seahawks or the 2015 broncos certainly i think you can make a pretty good case that they're already one of the best regular season defenses of all time or certainly in recent memory like you know the 2017 jacksonville jaguars yeah i mean well with lamar and their offense it's probably going to overshadow that a little bit but uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a, a, a hot take because they are really good. Yeah. Is this possibly one of the most underrated dominant teams that we've seen in the NFL in quite some time? Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, Ed, remember, nobody even talked about the Ravens as a top as a top tier team until until just recently. And we've always talked about how they're underrated and like, why, why aren't people talking about them enough? Yeah, and it's going to matter how they do it in the postseason. You could have this great regular season, but it matters how you do in the postseason. We talk about it with the Dodgers all the time in baseball, and there's a reason why the, their their teams haven't really been regarded as the best teams of all time because they're great in the regular season, but come postseason they choke. So it would be nice to see a Super Bowl run for, for John Harbaugh because then it could be regarded as one of the great teams. But up until then – you're just showing that, yeah, you're great in the regular season, but can you continue this dominance against the very best when it matters the most? Um, but another purple team, you know, uh, played on uh, this last week, and that was Minnesota Vikings. They didn't do much playing, though, so I should say that. But uh, they <laughs> faced the Green Bay Packers in what was just a slaughter, just a slaughter uh, for the Green Bay Packers against the Minnesota Vikings. And Ed, at least one of your teams won, so I know you'll <laughs> Oh, just dig dig in a little deeper there, Matthew. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, I got to say, I, I want to say thank you to the Green Bay Packers uh, because that game was over so early I was able to get to my New Year's Eve uh, party uh, <laughs> so I could uh, bring in the New Year the right way. Uh, really, this was a game that was over by halftime. Uh, Jordan Love, he continues to show the improvement of what it means to actually be on the field, seeing everything happen and not just in concept uh, by uh, sitting behind Aaron Rodgers. You know, earlier in the season, you would see him, you know, try and look at everything all at once, but now he looks a lot more calm and he really showed that and showed the world on Sunday Night Football the fact that he was in complete control of this offense. And you know what helps get complete control of the offense? Having your star running back back in the lineup you know, for his second game, and he looked really good. Aaron Jones came back, 20 carries, 120 yards, you know, with a, another reception out of the backfield. But 
when you're looking at how Jordan Love is operating this offense, it's efficient. It's spread out. There's, it's going to be difficult to contain with uh, with the ball going to a lot of different people and not just a single player, C.D. Lamb, uh, with, with the ball going all over the field. You know, you had Bo Melton. You had Jalen Reed. You had Tucker Kraft, all with six catches. Now, Jane Reed, he's actually tied with C.D. Lamb uh, f- with 10 touchdown receptions for the season. And this is a young cat that is really showing flashes of being an explosive uh, wide receiver on that team. So I can't wait to see what it looks like when we actually get our what's supposed to be our number one receiver, Christian Watson, back. Uh, and you know, back to top form instead of pulling on his hamstring every other play. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, with Minnesota during that game, they did start Jaron Hall, uh, you know, the rookie out of BYU, and it, the game was just too much for him at the, you know, for the first half. I mean, he only had five, he was only five of 10, 67 yards, you know, an interception, and, you know, they, the turnover right at the end of the half, that that fumble that he gave up, you know, helped give Green Bay that uh, get to 13 points in the second quarter. So they were up 23-3 to three at halftime, and it was really over from there. Now, Minnesota did try and spark plug everything by putting Nick Gunslinging Mullins uh, out there the second half of the uh, – the second half of the game, but that that only proved somewhat effective, not effective enough because when Green Bay's offense is running efficiently and steadily, they are a difficult task. It's just when do they get uh, interrupted in what they're doing that it starts to look a little wonky. So that's, that's really what I'm kind of looking for as them – possibly going to the playoffs right now. They're the seven seed, you know, so they beat Chicago and they're in, I mean, that's, it's kind of hard not to think that they're going to beat Chicago. That's what we do. <laughs> it, it just is. So, you know, as far as them getting the playoffs, it's a year ahead of schedule. We all, as a Packers fan, we all knew that this is going to be a rebuilding year. And if they make the playoffs in a rebuilding year with that young wide receiving core, it's the youngest offense in the league. You know, if they make it to the playoffs with that, you know, they're going to have a wider window than a lot of these teams that are really fighting the salary cap uh, to keep players in place so they can extend their championship runs. Now, on the flip side, Minnesota, uh, they're all but eliminated. They have a shot, but Basically, that was their one shot to get into the playoffs. And it really begs the question, how valuable is Kirk Cousins? I mean, he was valuable in getting the crowd pumped up, shirtless with a gold chain, you know, doing the skull thing and, you know, to start the game. But when you look at what this team has looked like since Kirk Cousins went down, my goodness, he must be one of the top 10 players in the league. Because this franchise has just just kind of held on by you know silly string. 
Yeah, Josh Dobbs had a nice little insanity run, and that kind of went away quickly. Exactly. That's exactly right. You know, so, you know, next year, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens in the offseason for uh, the Vikings. I know Justin Jefferson has been one of those vocal, I'm not sure if I'm going to play here kind of guys. <laughs> uh, you know, as long as Kirk Cousins is still the quarterback, I I don't know what he's actually looking for in a quarterback, you know, to go out and put out the effort. But we'll see what happens with that. Now, as far as, you know, beyond this season, and I touched on it already, long-term, this Packers team is actually built around Jordan Love, and it is a darn good thing that he was allowed his three years to sit behind Aaron Rodgers because if they tried to turn over this team to him in that first season, he'd been out of the league by now. But the the smarts that he's picked up, the tips that he's picked up, the training that he's picked up, you know, the reading of the offense, the control of the offense, the the concepts of the offense, everything and he's a full package right now. He's just getting his feet under him in live action. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what Jordan Love has to has to offer going forward. I mean, uh, Matthew, are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, I, I actually am. Um, Jordan Love, and this is no dig at the Packers or disrespect, but this is most likely going to be the least talented team that Jordan Love may have. I think everything is going to go up from here. And uh, it's going to be kind of exciting to see because if they're able to do another like Aaron Rodgers situation with him, uh, that will be truly incredible. They're going to be kind of on to something because we saw that with Aaron Rodgers. He sat behind Brett Favre for all those years. And now look at him. He's going to be regarded as one of the greatest. And then Jordan Love, uh, he sat behind Aaron Rodgers and uh, to be determined on hit on what it's going to look like for him in the future. But to me, the future is bright for him. And I do think he is definitely the long-term answer for green Bay. Yeah. I think, I think we're seeing the value of court of quarterbacks sitting behind these veterans. I mean, we saw it with Jordan love sitting behind Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Rodgers sitting behind uh, Brett Favre. We saw it with Patrick Mahomes sitting behind Alex Smith and if I remember correctly, Patrick Mahomes credits, you know, being benched as his uh, first season. He he credits Alex Smith for helping him develop into arguably the best quarterback in the NFL. And did Lamar Jackson sit behind Joe Flacco his first year? I know his second year he was the full-time starter because he won MVP that year. But was he, did he sit behind Flacco his first year? Or was, or, or did Flacco, or not Flacco, uh, did, did Lamar start right away? I think Flacco started like that half the season, and when they were out of the playoffs by that point, uh, Lamar came in, if I'm remembering that correctly. Yeah, that's what it was as well. Yeah, like I said, like there is is value in sitting behind a a quarterback and then a, a veteran quarterback, that is. And then as far as the Packers go, doesn't it seem like the Packers, like the Packers are just one of those, one of those teams where, they're never truly going to be bad. Like, yeah, they're they're going to have some you know mediocre seasons, and if they have a losing season, it'll it'll be by like be by one game. But I there to me, there's two teams in, in the NFL that I can think of where they're never truly going to be terrible. Like that's just the vibe that I get from them, and that is y'all's teams actually, the Steelers <laughs> and, and the Packers. You know, um, I root for. <laughs> 
I mean, I, I root for like the, the Bucks. Literally, have the worst, uh, worst winning percentage in, in the NFL. Like ov- overall, like when you compare our records against everybody else, it is it is by, by far the worst. And guys, if we lose to the Panthers, I don't think I don't think you're going to hear the end of it from me. Um, but we don't need to worry about about the Bucks. I uh, I digress. There. The point is is that the Packers, and you talked about it with the Ravens, Ed that some teams just have built that winning culture where even if, even if they don't achieve a winning season, you know, in certain years, you can tell that the will to win is there. You can tell that that culture is there. And that's exactly, you know, what we're seeing, you know, what we're seeing with the Packers. Yeah, no, definitely David. Um, I agree on that, but uh, we weren't just uh, able to watch uh, the NFL this week and we were able to watch uh, the other bowl games from the New Year's Six bowl games uh, in addition to the college football semifinal. <clears throat> and the first one of those was the Cotton Bowl, and that was between the Ohio State Buckeyes and Missouri Tigers. And, guys, I know that Ohio State didn't have uh, Kyle McCord, nor did they have Marvin Harrison Jr., but I, I'm impressed with this Missouri team. Um, and I've been impressed with them for most of the year. Uh, I I think that what they're doing actually and in being in the SEC is is impressive. I, I'm not going to jump and say that they're going to be the next big thing. They're going to be in the playoffs or whatever. But they they beat Ohio State. They beat them 14 to three. Missouri has always been known for having a great defense, but to see this offense click on all cylinders is another thing. And let's not forget how close of a game it was against LSU until the very end. Missouri had LSU on the on the ropes this year, and well, when you have that LSU defense, uh, I mean, almost every game could be like that. But James <laughs> Daniels was the Heisman winner for a reason. And he ended up, he pretty much won that game single-handedly at the end. But Missouri, guys, make no mistake, the, three, the three-headed monster they have with Brady Cook, Cody Schrader, and Luther Burden is a very scary three-headed monster. They are going to lose one of those next year with Schrader. But with Brady Cook returning and Luther Burden, Expect that combo to be probably one of the best combos in all of college football next year. Luther Burden put up impressive, impressive numbers, and rightfully so was up there as one of the semifinalists for the Bolitnikoff Award. So, well, not semifinalists, but he was in the the, the top ten um, for good reasons. So I was impressed to see this with this Missouri team. Although Ohio State did not have their starting quarterback and their number one wide receiver, they still had a lot of their starters there. So to see this happen was actually pretty amazing for Missouri and was a very big step in the right direction. But I want to talk about their uh, maybe the prediction for next year for these two teams. In all honesty, it's going to sound kind of vanilla. I expect their seasons this year to be the same next year. I don't see Ohio State being beating Michigan next year. I see Ohio State being almost in the same situation a little bit. With even if Harbaugh leaves, because I think there's a really good chance that Harbaugh Harbaugh leaves Michigan. You still think that Ohio State won't beat Michigan even if Harbaugh leaves? They beat him this year without Harbaugh. 
I mean, fair enough. (laughs) Maybe not at the game, but he was able to be with them the whole week. Uh, But and just real quick, um, Harbaugh did sign an agent, which he has never done before. Oh, Harbaugh! That tells me that he is gone. Yeah, he's Mm -hmm. he's gone. Uh, And and I saw an update earlier about. Uh, reporters asking him about some of these uh, wins. Um, there, there, there seems to be some more uh, headlines in regards to a lot of the scandals. But Harbaugh, he, he'll be checked out the second that national championship game is over, uh, whether they win or lose. He's a very professional guy, so I expect him to celebrate mm-hmm. if they win and really enjoy that, let that soak in. But uh, I, yeah, he'll be gone. But I, I, I see Michigan beating Ohio State next year. Uh, the difference is, is how this playoff is going to be. It's going to be uh, – you have a 12-team playoff going into next year. So will Ohio State be in that running? Uh, it could They could be. Missouri, I see them being, though, in this same exact situation, uh, being you know maybe two to three losses. Um, they are returning with their uh, starting quarterback and receiver. So uh, I see them being around there. I don't see Missouri winning – uh, the SEC or anything like that by no means, but I'm impressed with what they've done this year. And I think it'll uh, transfer over to next year too. But when you're playing in the SEC, you have to be near perfect. Yeah. I mean, listen, all the credit in the world to Missouri, because I certainly didn't expect them to be, uh, to be uh, this good, but can I just say something real quick? And is this sour grapes? Yeah, probably. Eli Drinkwitz has to be the most overrated coach in, in college football. But, David, your coach is Billy Napier. Yeah, Billy Napier isn't mentioned as a, as one of the best coaches, okay? So you can shut the hell up. Not you guys. Not you guys. Just saying in, in general, yeah. right? Because Eli Drinkwitz wasn't anything for, like, the first few years he, he was there. And then he hires, uh, you know, Kirby Moore. And, you know, then they're a, a great team. Now, of course, you got to give Eli Drinkwitz credit because he was the one who made the hire in the first place. But then when Kirby Moore leaves and he's absolutely going to, you know, leave for a head coaching opportunity or somewhere, he won't be in Mizzou forever. Then what's Eli drink? What's going to, going to look, look like now. Right. Um, but uh, listen, sour grapes. Yeah, probably. I just hate losing to a major dork in college football, but you know what? Personal feelings aside, uh, kudos, kudos to Missouri for, you know, for the, for the season they had. And like I said, obviously Drinkwitz had to hire Kirby Moore, but let's just see where things stand with Drinkwitz once Kirby Moore leaves. Yeah. Things could change. I mean, we see, uh, coordinators leave, uh, left and right now. So, uh, I'm sure only time will tell when it comes to that. But, uh, as far as now goes, uh, I mean, he has led this Missouri team to a great year that was kind of shocked a lot of people. And I mean, guys, they almost beat Georgia last year. I remember that. I mean, this was coming down the wire and yes, some things could be a fluke, but it's that Missouri defense that is a constant. So uh, I, I do want to give them props to there. But uh, that wasn't the only bowl game we had. We had the infamous Orange Bowl. And, uh, well, this is going to be a little bit more infamous and for uh, different reasons. But Florida State versus Georgia and David. I mean, tell us how this one went, bud. <laughs> well, I don't know if you guys saw, um, but the day, of the, the day of the game, I think it was like 30 minutes before the game, um, I posted that famous – um, uh, Steve Harvey meme that that shows a conflicted Steve Harvey, you know, up with a like enthused Steve Harvey, and my caption was, uh, 
like Florida fans when FSU gets whacked, but we realize it's Georgia doing the whacking. So, you know, it was kind of a, you know, um, you know, kind of a crazy, crazy thing there. Um, but listen, I don't think any of us should be surprised by what happened. Certainly I was not surprised. I mean, my final score prediction for the game was 59 to zero. I predicted that Georgia would break its own record from last year for the largest uh, margin of victory in, in a bowl game. Now I didn't get the score right, but I almost, I almost got it right. And overall I did get the record, right? I did, you know, I did predict that Georgia would um, win in the largest blowout uh, victory ever, you know, and you know, FSU fans will talk about, well, like, like 95% of our team was out because, you know, the committee basically determined our, our season was pointless. And so like, why even, why even play the game? And listen, I, I get I get being frustrated, man. And I am even as a Gator fan, I am sorry that things didn't go your way. Okay, but at some point, life lesson here: things are not always going to go your way, right? Even when you feel like, I mean, guys, I think we we all of us I feel like we've been wrong. Certainly, I, I felt like I, I've been wrong. I, I know there were times where I was in the right, but there was nothing I could do about it. And you know what? At the end, I sucked it up because life is not fair, right? Do you have pride for your school or not? Well, I have to question that because, and I think we talked about this last time, Ed, the difference, there is a difference between playing for your school and playing at your school. And so far, FSU's transfer strategy has worked for them for the past, you know, past couple of years. But when push came to shove, we saw that the, these were guys who played for their, or excuse me, they played at FSU, but they didn't play for FSU. Now with Georgia, Georgia had some opt-outs too, but Georgia's key players, you know, still stayed. Uh, Carson Beck, um, what's that running back's name? Uh, Dijon Edwards. I don't remember his first name, but yeah, so, so, something Edwards. Um, you know, Georgia still had their their key guys stay, and then don't forget. Eventually, Georgia was playing its backups, and those backups destroyed FSU's backups. Like, I think, what was their backup quarterback saying? Gunnar Stockton? He had a couple of touchdown passes, too. I mean, it was just it, it was just one of those games where, like, you just knew what was going to happen. And if you thought FSU had any chance, any chance at all in, in this game, then you might, as, you might as well just be put in, in an insane asylum, man. Um, but, uh... But just an overall, just an overall, you know, very, uh, very forgettable game. Um, Ed, if you want to expand on that. Well, I'd, I'd like to give you my impression of watching that game. <laughs> Unless you're a Georgia fan. That was otherwise, yes. Two drives. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it was, it was tough to watch. I, you know, because at some point you feel bad for them. You know, these are the kids that really stuck it out and decided to keep playing for Florida State. And these are the guys that, you know, they knew they were going to get murdered. They still went out there and they still they still gave it what they had in that yeah. game. And kudos to, to Norvell. He, I saw today a, a post-game speech that he gave to that locker room and it was it was very well crafted and very emotional and it really played to what he is trying to build for players to play for the spear and not at the spear 
Yeah, and no. Go ahead. The, the other the other thing too that I want to talk about with Georgia guys didn't didn't it just seem like I don't think Georgia was doing anything fancy like they weren't running wildcat they weren't doing anything crazy they were just playing sound basic fundamental football they they just happened to have a much better roster on the field than FSU did Matthew. Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty much night and day between the two. Uh, that's just how good Georgia is, and in my opinion, it was a preview of what's to come next year. That that's just honestly how I felt. I'm like, this team they've been scary the entire year. I mean, they were pretty much at number one the entire year up until they faced Bama. Um, well, this is going to be that same team next year as well. So I just think that Georgia is just all around better, and even their backups too. And I've said all year that Georgia is Georgia until they're not Georgia anymore. And, you know, yes, they lost to Alabama, but they're still Georgia. Yeah, I mean, if, I mean, obviously, if there's one team that is going to beat Georgia, it's obviously Alabama. So they lost to the one team I think we all expected them to lose to. Or maybe not expect them to lose to, but they lost to the one team where it wasn't a surprise. It, no, they lost to the coach we expected them to lose to. That's Nick yeah. So, uh, but, yeah. but uh, you know, things might not have been peachy for uh, uh, Florida State, but we did have a Peach Bowl, and that was Penn State and Ole Miss. And this is uh, one where I was wrong, uh, but you guys were both right. And Ed, you know, go ahead and uh, you know rub it in my face on how you were right. You know, you know how right I was about this game. I missed the final score by one stinking point. One. <laughs> They went for two because yeah. <laughs> they went for two at the end of the game when it didn't matter anymore. Yeah, yeah your final yeah. prediction was thirty-eight twenty-four, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> so, and really, this was more as more a sense of Penn State is really good and they're really good defensively, but they were playing teams like Indiana and Nebraska. They were not playing. LSU and they were not playing Alabama. So Penn State kind of inflated their win total by playing lesser opponents than what Old Miss had to deal with this entire season. So they both went in 10 and 2, but the athletes at Old Miss had trotted out there. They just ran by a lot of these Penn State players. Yes, Manny Diaz wasn't at Penn State because he took the job at Duke. Uh, so there was that portion of the defense I was missing. However, I don't think that would have made any difference whatsoever in the final outcome of Ole Miss winning. Maybe the score might have been a little different, but still, Jackson Dart, Quinchon G- Judkins, that's the those are the horses that make the Ole Miss offense run, and they ran, you know, in this game. Jackson Dart with three touchdowns, throwing 379 yards and a rushing TD. I mean, you can't stop that. You know, you can't. Penn State's offense has not proven that it can keep up with that kind of proficiency on offense. You know, their idea of a game, Penn State's idea of a game, is to drag you into the mud and let's see who makes it out alive. Well, guess what? Ole Miss made it out alive. And it was the game was basically over in the third quarter, you know, and Penn State, 
you know, they got that final TD in the fourth quarter and thought that they could like muster something, but the game was really just out of hand at that point. You know, I will say uh, Penn State did get a call against them in the first quarter on a fumble that should not, uh, they, it should have been a fumble and it was called not a fumble. It was called a forward pass. And there's no way in my mind that that was a forward pass. That should have been a fumble. That could have changed the trajectory of this game because it was so early on. But in the end, it is exactly what what I thought it was going to be. You know, that, that point differential. Oh, that one point. Uh, so, but when you look to project from this, because keep in mind, we didn't have a lot of opt-outs in this game. This was strength on strength in this game, which which I certainly appreciated versus all the opt-outs in the Florida State and Georgia game. Georgia had 21, Florida State had over 30. You know, you know, it was a different vibe altogether. When you project those two teams going into next season, Penn State is going to uh, appreciate not having divisions, but they're still going to have another level to get to, to get to the Ohio States, Michigan's, but now Oregon and USC and Washington as well. So that's going to be an interesting thing to keep an eye on for them next year. Do, do they win 10 wins? Can I tell, can I say that now? I don't think so, but we'll see what happens. As far as Ole Miss, I saw something today that said that Ole Miss, I think is a 12 to one, national championship favorite for next year already, you know, well, you know, they are going to give Alabama and Georgia and Texas and Missouri a run for the money in the SEC. You know, there's no doubting that. And with the transfer pickups that Ole Miss has picked up, it's only going to get better. So I'm really interested to see how this will project. Uh, But in the end, you know, these two programs are good programs and they will continue to be good. Hopefully getting a little bit better. They have to go through the steps to get better and get higher and to get to where they want to be. But at this point, they are just underneath that upper echelon team that they really want to uh, get into that, uh, that club. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you look when you look at Penn State, um, yeah, they had a uh, overall they had a good year and they have a, a good defense. But you have to when you look at that schedule and the only two teams in the regular season that they faced that they you know that had had a pulse, Penn State lost, and then of course you add you add an Ole Miss there, and that's three teams with the pulse that um you know that Penn State lost to, and you know what guys. Earlier on, earlier today, I said that Eli Drinkwitz might be the most overrated coach in college football. Well, with apologies to Eli Drinkwitz, I'm sorry. He is not the most overrated coach. James Franklin is. Is James Franklin a good coach? Yes. But I don't know what it is. But Penn State just does not show up against top-tier teams under, um, you know, under James Franklin. And, you know, it's funny. Like, I, I know um, I know somebody who is a uh, – a Penn State fan, and he said this to me a few years ago. Now, take it with a grain of salt. This was a few years ago, so maybe things have have changed or whatnot. But he is a diehard Penn State fan, and he said that 
that the two coordinators pretty much do everything on the field, that James Franklin does not do anything at all. He just lets his coordinators run everything, which listen, maybe that's not, maybe that's not such a, a bad thing, but at some point, man, like when you have, when you're not showing up against top tier competition, at some point, like people are going to look to you as a coach and they're going to be like, Hey, like what gives man? Like, what are we, what are, what are we going to do here? Um, and then as far as Ole Miss goes, yeah, I mean, I'm not that 12 to one odd. I'm not surprised by that. Like, you know, whatsoever. I mean, they've killed the transfer portal. They got Princely, Yuman Mielin out of Florida. They got Walter Nolan out of, uh, out of a uh, Texas A&M. Um, you know, they've got Jackson Dart returning. Um, Quinshawn Judkins is returning. And, uh, Who's that one receiver, or, or is I don't know if he's a receiver or, or a tight end? Um, Speardmont. Uh, do you guys know who I'm talking about? Um, kind of has a weird-ish last name. Priestcorn. Priestcorn. Thank you. Is he a receiver or, or a tight end? He's a tight end, and he okay. actually had 136 yards and two touchdowns in this game. He yeah, was all great. over the field. Yeah. Yeah, guys, old old Miss is going to be loaded next year. Yeah, I agree. And I that, that was actually going to be the question I was going to ask: Is James Franklin the most overrated college football <laughs> coach? But I'm glad that you got to that, David. Um, but I mean, I feel like the answer is yes, he is, and I feel like the numbers pretty much indicate that. But Ole Miss, uh, with what they're doing in the transfer portal, uh, I, I, I'm excited to see how they do next year in the SEC. I'm already looking forward to it with this year already being over. I'm like, oh, I want to see next year. I want to see how they do. But, uh, you know, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, there is so many fiestas going on. But I had my eye on one fiesta, and that was the Fiesta Bowl. And that was Liberty in Oregon. And, guys – no Jackson Powers Johnson, no Troy Franklin, no problem for <laughs> Oregon. I mean, 45 to 6. It it felt so good. But, you know, Liberty, their first drive got a touchdown. Uh, they, they they put up the points really, really quick, really easy. They did miss their extra point, hence the, the six points they have. But they scored immediately, and I was just like, Wow. Okay. Um, that that kind of sucks. That's not good. But you know, he, um, Dan Lanny did his best. Nick Saban, you know, halftime adjustment, but he did it after the first drive. I mean, it, it, they made that adjustment. And they didn't allow a single point the rest of the game. I was very impressed with that. But I was impressed, just like I've been all year with Bo Nix, guys. Bo Nix, 28 for 35 with five touchdowns. I mean, that's not a bad way to end your college career. You got a, you got a W. You got uh, a great stat line, but even better, that 80% uh, percent that he had on the day completion-wise bumped him up over Mac Jones to get that record for completion percentage in a season. And so that moved him up to 77.45% on the year completion percentage, which just was over Mac Jones' 77.36%. So Bo Nix, guys, I mean, uh, it's not maybe exactly how he wanted to end his college career. He would have rather been in the playoffs and in the national championship game, but when you put up numbers like that and your resurgence after Auburn and coming to Oregon, that that is a great way because it, it helped his draft stock. 
I mean, we talked about this last episode. If he had stayed at Auburn, he probably would have been maybe a day five, I mean, or like a round five type of talent, where now this is really going to bump him up big time. So I'm happy for Bo Nix to see what he was able to do. And same with Bucky Irving, the other senior. This is his last game. He put up a great stat line with over 100 yards on the ground. So I was really happy as a Duck fan to see this. And uh, they had uh, them in Liberty. They had one of the fewest opt-outs. Uh, of all the bowl games, and that's what was really nice to see. But Oregon, I mean, with them being a Power Five, Liberty Group of Five, you were able to see clear, just like almost like the Florida State and Georgia game. It was night and day as far as the level of competition. And as much as I love what Jamie Chatwell has done there, uh, it just shows you that uh, Oregon and a Group of uh, Power Five is going to be just more superior in this bowl mm-hmm. game, and that's what happened. But I want to talk about 2024, and you guys are going to hear this prediction. You're going to hear it here first. You're not going to hear it anywhere else. But my prediction for these two schools is Liberty. They're going to fall off. I mean, they they did lose their starting quarterback to the transfer portal, and just as I said the the line before, I love Jamie Chatwell and what he's doing, but. I just don't see them being able to uh, do this again next year. Um, they, I don't know what their schedule is going to look like next year, but there's no way it could be easier than it was this year. I'm sure it'll still be easy, but I don't really see them being where they were this year. But this is where my prediction is big, and that is the Oregon Ducks. I'm going to sound like a boomer. I'm going to sound like you know uh, the biggest Oregon Duck bias fan here, but I, I, I do my best to put that aside. But – I really feel like I could see next year Georgia and Oregon in the championship game. And it's almost fitting to see Dan Lanning against his former team, his former coach uh, with Kirby Smart in Georgia. I, I don't know what it is, but I'm seeing it, guys. Dan Lanning, he's moving mountains in Eugene. He really is with what he's doing there on the recruiting level, the transfer portal, and the fact that we already have our next quarterback lined up with Dylan Gabriel. I'm not saying Dylan Gabriel is the the best quarterback ever out there, but it's not like he's a scrub. The guy could ball, and he proved that this year with Oklahoma. And if he could bring that to Oregon next year when we go into the Big Ten, um, I, I just see a lot of great things happening, and we don't have that question mark. I look at schools like Ohio State. They have a big question mark. Who's going to be their quarterback next year? Uh, you know, in, in Michigan, is Jim Harbaugh going to be there next year? And if he's not, can they continue the success that they had this year when Jim Harbaugh was not there? So I just – I really see Oregon being on the rise. It's unfortunate they didn't make it this year, but the better team did in Washington. And – Washington's not going to have that team next year, in my opinion. So I just see Oregon next year really moving up. And with this 12-team playoff, I think it's only going to help them even more. So that's my prediction for next year. Um, I'm sure you guys will probably disagree, but also agree on some things. So I'd like to hear what you guys have to say. Yeah, um, let me just say real quick, because before in the – when we were talking about the Orange Bowl, we were talking about how there's a difference between playing at your school and playing for your school. And then here you have Bo Nix, a transfer who was clearly playing for Oregon. And, you know, the way that I see it, Matthew, is I see it as let me show my appreciation for the school that took a chance on me after things at Auburn didn't go the way that I wanted them to go. You are 100% right. I mean, the way that 
Oregon loved him and accepted him when he came and vice versa. I mean, it's a two-way street. Bo Nix fell in love with Eugene and Oregon and the atmosphere there. And and it, you coming from Auburn and being a legacy there, you didn't know how things were like that were going to go. And you didn't live up to those expectations they also had for you in Auburn. So you're absolutely right. This is a guy, class act, who did not opt out, who was playing for Oregon. Yeah, and I think, and I know this is going to sound very, very, very random, but I, but I think it also helps that he's married as well. Now, I'm not saying marriage automatically equals maturity, but how old's the guy? Like 23, like you know, 20, 24, and he's already, he's already married. I mean, obviously, there is a bit of a, a bit of a maturity aspect there that I think can ultimately uh, tie down to the humility um, that he's that he's shown. I agree. Ed, do you have something? I, I wanted to just give a quick shout out uh, for Liberty because this is a team that over last season, they lost the head coach that got them to national prom- prominence and Hugh Freeze, who took the Auburn job. And then usually when that happens, especially at a G5 school, any good player from that school just disappears. And, you know, you'd never see that team again. Well, this is a team that took uh, took the challenge of the new season with a new coach, with a new starting quarterback, and just went through and really took care of business through through a schedule. It may not have been the best schedule. Okay, we'll say it's the less schedule in D1. Uh, but they took care of business, and that is truly – difficult in my opinion uh, for a team to do especially at the G5 level you know to not disappear to go back and do it again after they had success the previous season so shout out to Liberty for doing that and I'm I'm interested to see what they do going forward if they are going to you know get keep that momentum going over the next season or two uh, to see if maybe moving up a level is in their future. But right now, I just want to appreciate them for what they've done over the past two seasons, especially this season following up from their last offseason. Yeah, well, I think what it is is Hugh Freeze left the the blue, left them the, the blueprint for success there. Yeah, and Jamie Chatwell, uh, what you know, the success that he was having in Coastal Carolina too. I think uh, having that is great. I don't know if Grayson McCall has any level uh, years left of eligibility, but I mean that that could be a good pickup for them in the transfer portal if he is. Uh, I mean, his old coach they have now an opening with Caden uh, Salter going into the the. Didn't, I thought Grayson McCall already transferred. I could be wrong, but I thought he already transferred. I, mean, I will have to look at that. Um, I, I know last year he was he was entering the transfer portal. He wanted to go to Auburn. I mean that it seemed like things were really pointing towards that, but it did not happen. He went back to Coastal Carolina, but I'll have to look to see yeah. if he did or not. But if he linked up again with Jamie, Jamie Chatwell, uh, I think that would be a great connection. So. For sure, for sure. And you know, to Matthew, to your point, I, right now Oregon seems the most stable. <laughs> a college football team going into next season 
at the elite level in the Big Ten. Oh, Big Ten, yeah. I mean, you, yeah, in the Big Ten, them, and then with Georgia, I feel like they're probably the most stable team in all of college football. So that's why I have them up there. I mean, I feel like that bowl game was an indication of what's to come next year. I mean, Carson Beck is coming back. He is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, going to continue this success into next year. So, and they're going to be pissed off. They already are pissed off. They lost to Bama. They had an opportunity to have a three-peat, and, it, and they end up fumbling it. So they're going to be pissed off, They and they're going to show that next year just like they did in that bowl game. So I just see that – I just see when it comes to the end of the year next year, Georgia is going to be there, and I just see Oregon doing that too. So, But only time will tell. We still got another year probably from this exact date to find out which team's going to be there. So uh, – be looking forward to that but that is about all we have today folks so we appreciate you guys stopping by listening to us uh please hit that like that subscribe button uh we are on spotify now so check us out on spotify or youtube wherever you get your content from we aim to be there put in the comments how you guys feel your predictions on uh how you guys see things going next year. Uh, if you were right with your picks as well, going into these uh, bowl matchups, because I mean, we were all pretty close on our matchups in the end. I believe me and David were four and one because we did not preview the Ohio state and Missouri game. And I believe Ed ended up being three and two. So, um, but I mean, come on, he's a Longhorns fan. So I'm glad yeah. that he chose his Longhorns in that game, but um, it, was it's a great uh, bowl game matchups all around besides the Georgia one. Um, but yeah, put in the comment section, how you guys feel and how you see things are going to go. And uh, once again, hit that like and subscribe, but thank you guys for stopping by until next time we are rounding third and we are headed for home.